You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.18, Furusato, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan and pleased to announce that Gundam is good again. We did it, folks. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and just now realizing that I wrote a thing for this, but it's for next episode. Oh no! Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 423 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Victoria W. This podcast would not be possible without your support. A quick heads up that there will be no new episode next week on Saturday, January 2nd. We are taking the coming week off! and we will be back to our regular podcast release schedule the week following. Wishing you all a safe and happy new year, and you'll hear us next in 2021. But this week and this year, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 20, Crybaby Cecilia, or Nakimushi Seshiria, Part 1. For research this week, I looked into Millie's name, and Nina dug deep on pizza in Japan in the 1980s. But first, it's time to tap the phones at everyone's favorite third-tier pirate radio station, Radio Free Shangri-La. Thank you for calling 622, the Shangri-La Colony Information and Helpline, a free public service of the Colony Corporation, available to all colonial residents of Silver Tier or higher. The time is 4.17 p.m., Saturday, December 26th, UC 0088. Your call may be important to us and will be monitored to ensure compliance. Please listen carefully as the menus may have changed. To access the Colony Corporation Public Answering Service, please have your customer ID and registration code ready and press 1. To pay Colony taxes, please press 2. To pay fees, please press 3. To pay fines, please press 4. To pay tariffs, please press 5. To pay emoluments, please press 6. For information on trash and recycling pickup, press 7. To report a problem, please press 8. To hear these options again in a Xeon accent, please press 9. You pressed 8. Report a problem. If this is an emergency, please hang up and call the Titans, Ayug, Nudicides, Neozeon, Ye Old Zeon, Temray Army, or whichever other faction currently controls the colony. To make a noise complaint, press 1. To file a complaint about colony weather control or to make a weather request, press 2. To report unsafe or illegal conditions at your home or workplace, press 3. To report truancy, vandalism, or teenagers, press 4. To report an oxygen leak or other hull breach, press 5. If there's something in your backyard and you'd prefer that it wasn't, press 6. 
You pressed 3 to report unsafe or illegal conditions at your home or workplace. Please hold while we connect you with an operator. All colony concerns are important to us, but some are more important than others. For the low price of 1,000 gilas a month, you could be added to our exclusive Shangri-La Premier Complainers Club. Benefits of membership include priority access to all Colony Corporation services and a 10% discount on select bottles of wine from- Thank you for calling the Shangri-La Colony Information and Helpline. Can I just have your name and citizen identification number? Uh, I, uh, I was told that I could make an anonymous report. Of course. Are you concerned about retaliation? I'm concerned about a lot of things. Well, I'm here to help. Why don't you tell me what's wrong? It all started about two months ago, when... Thanks for always bringing us this great coffee, Mr. Timson. You were right. We really did get used to that funny aftertaste. But then... Ow! You hit me! What the Brendan Brendanson! You actually punched him! That is not acting. Gildenstern, you intemperate buffoon! I order you to cease pummeling Hector at once! Have at you, scallywag! Hey, Mr. Timpson, those gas lamps you brought in to light the office after our stolen electricity was shut off keep getting dimmer and dimmer. No, they aren't. Yes, they are! It's really starting to get to me. There's nothing wrong with the lights. Maybe there's something wrong with you. Hold up there, partner. Let me get a good look at you. Well, now, you're a funny sort of varmint, ain't you? Oh, baby. Ah, head splitting. Need coffee. Oh, Alice, I'm so glad you're home at last. I missed you ever so badly. I've missed you too, little sister. I promise I'll never leave to become a spaceship again. So, I guess that about covers it. That was all... extremely weird. And didn't clarify anything. And how did you do that flashback noise over the phone? Uh, uh... Never mind. This line is usually for dangerous conditions at construction sites, non-compliance with safety regulation, that kind of thing. I don't know what any of this is supposed to be. Do you want to file a police report? I, I can connect you with your local station. Or an electrician to fix the lights? No. The police would only make things worse. We need real help. Hey, are you on the phone? Who are you calling? Please. You have to help us. Give me that. You have to get in touch with Strobe Flanagan. He's the only one who can tell him to go to Sludge Lake. Get off me. No. Ow. Stop biting me. Ow. Uh, hello. This was just an ordinary everyday prank call of the kind so popular with the youths today. So, nobody needs any help? No. Certainly not. I have everything under control. Goodbye. And now the recap for Crybaby Cecilia, Part 1.
The Argama has been given new orders and stops at Granada for repairs and resupply. Since Millie will be leaving the ship and staying on the moon, she offers to take tourists to lunch and on a tour of Anaheim Electronics. On their way off of the ship, they run into Bright and Wong Lee arguing about the Argama's next mission. To Bright, it's clear that the AU command doesn't understand what they're asking of their soldiers and pilots. Trying to distract Judo from worrying about Lena, the kids from Shangri-La decide to go out for pizza and are stopped by Wang Li. Without introducing himself or giving any explanation of who he is, Wang Li begins to berate Judo, accusing him of not working hard enough or taking his work seriously enough. When Judo questions his right to say such things, Wang Li winds up to sucker punch the young pilot, only for Judo to slip out of the way and knee Wang Li in the stomach. Before Wang Li can interfere any further, Judo grabs El's arm and they leave the port, headed into the city. Bicha and Mondo try to follow, but are not quite fast enough, and they are forced to stay behind and keep working. Millie is taking Torres to her favorite pizza place, and on the way finds out that Torres actually lived in Granada as a kid. Judo and El run into them outside, and on hearing Millie offer to pay, turn the outing into a double date. As a regular, Millie knows the waitresses, but it turns out Torres knows one of them as well, Cecilia, who was called Crybaby Cecilia when they were kids. She's quick to point out Torres' own embarrassing nickname, Wimpy Torres, and the whole group laugh while Millie and Cecilia catch up. It seems Cecilia wants to move away from Granada and to one of the colonies. In the alley next to the pizza parlor, Gotten and his subordinates, Clayu and Nell, all dressed in civilian clothes, loiter around, discussing their latest plan to attack the Argama in hushed tones. The two pilots go inside to wait and, walking up to the back door of the restaurant, Gotten meets with Cecilia. He's offered her money and tickets on an immigration ship for her entire family if she will spy for him against the Argama. Inside, Millie, Torres, El, and Judo munch on pizza, and Torres hears about Judo's encounter with Wang Li. Completely horrified, Torres insists they go back to the Argama immediately so that Judo can apologize. Doesn't he know Wang Li is very powerful in Ayug? How will Judo save his sister if Wang Li has him kicked off the Argama? At this point, Judo starts choking on a mouthful of pizza and rushes off to the bathroom, El following to make sure he's okay. The bathroom's windows are open and overlook the alley. They overhear Gotten and Cecilia, as Gotten promises Cecilia money and shuttle tickets if she succeeds in photographing a map of the docks and providing them with the Argama's location. Judo wants to stop her right away, but El points out they have no real proof, and it would be better to catch Cecilia in the act. Torres, come to check on Judo and El, runs into Cecilia in the back hall. She tells him she has to hurry home, but invites him to visit her that evening. Waiting in the car just outside, Millie spots Bicha and Mondo arriving, having snuck off the ship for a break and a chance to try Granada pizza. They rush up to the counter to order and suddenly recognize Nell and Clayu. Bicha and Mondo do their best to remain unnoticed while eavesdropping on the Axis soldiers, and they find out that the Axis ship is docked at Port Blanc and that a surprise attack is planned against the Argama, aided by an amateur spy. Quietly eating their pizza and listening to the Axis soldiers, they are interrupted when Millie comes in and calls out their names. Nell and Clayu here, recognize Bicha and Mondo, and a brawl breaks out in the pizza parlor as the Axis soldiers try to get away and the Ayug soldiers try to stop them. 
Even when Nell and Cleu get away, Bichan Modo don't give up. They dash to their car so they can go warn the Argama about what they've heard. Judo and Elle join them, but to follow Cecilia, who is also headed to the port. Once the kids from Shangri-La pass Cecilia's car, Elle hops out to keep an eye on the amateur spy, and the rest go on to warn the Argama and prepare mobile suits to launch. At the guardhouse, Cecilia claims she's there to deliver pizzas, and the guards stop her until they can get confirmation. While they're distracted, she takes a photo of the map of the port. Judo goes straight to the bridge to talk to Bright and overhears an argument. Wang Li wants Bichan Mondo kicked off the crew, and questions Judo's commitment to Ayu. Bright stands up for them all, and Judo barges in to confront Wang Li. Saving his sister is at least as important as their war, and he'll do it alone if he has to. Then Judo, Bicha, and Mondo launch in mobile suits, and despite Wang Li demanding they all be captured, Bright trusts their intel and orders the hatch opened. The three fly straight to Port Blanc, where they get into a dogfight with Nell and Cleyu, but do their best not to damage Goten's ship. Judo thinks he'll be kicked off the Argama, and he'll need a ship to go save Lina. Cecilia meets with Goten to give him the photograph of the port, but it doesn't show the location of the Argama and he refuses to pay her, instead demanding she get him the exact location of the Ayug ship and meet him later. The mobile suit fight above rattles the city below, and Torres finds Cecilia cowering near her car, terrified. After successfully fighting off the Axis mobile suits, Judo returns to the Argama only to be confronted with a dressing down from Wang Li, who threatens him with correction. But Judo is unconcerned. I didn't do any of this for you, and if you don't like it, take your best shot. All of his friends stand with him, and Bright informs Wang Li that the whole crew feels the same way. Torres brings Cecilia to the Argama's break room. She's terrified of the war and just wants to escape, to run away. Torres offers her money, but it's not enough, not with a family of seven to care for. The kids arrive, and when Cecilia tries to leave, El blocks her, telling Judo he needs to explain to Torres what they've seen. But we are left with Judo, hesitating. I know I complained about Zeta's character creep and that there were just like constantly adding more people and not giving us enough to care about any of them. But I do feel as if the Gundam franchise often excels when it takes a moment to highlight how these conflicts, how this war affects ordinary people. And they managed to give us just enough characterization of Cecilia that I care about her <laughs> and also use her to show us, you know, what this is like for people who aren't pilots, who aren't in the military, who aren't part of AUG or Axis. Yeah, I mean, this episode does a great job of characterizing characters who have mostly just sort of like been there. You know, this is an episode that uh, shows us where Torres grew up, tells us a little bit about his life. We get to meet his childhood friend and like see how they interact. Turns out he used to be called Wimpy Torres when he was like nine years old. And this is something that you don't necessarily pick up unless you're listening to the Japanese very closely or know Japanese. But the words for crybaby and the words for wimpy are very similar. Mm. Crybaby is nakimushi or crying bug. And uh, wimpy is yoamushi, weak bug. <laughs> and we get to see Torres like 
putting the moves on Millie a little bit? Yeah, I, I confess, I was very curious. I don't get the sense of like, they're not head over heels for each other or anything. It's not that dramatic. But she clearly likes him. You know, she grabs hold of his arm. Just a little casual dating. Yeah. They're like the only two people who are roughly around their same ages. I mean, I guess there's always uh, Caesar, but Torres gets to be like one tier higher worth of characterization than all the other bridge crew people. And they're both cute and like they're both interested in sort of the engineering stuff. Well, and it turns out they're both from Granada. Like that's not nothing. Anyway, it's cute. (laughs) I really liked it. Um, but, like, we are just doing the Miharu storyline again with Cecilia, right? The redhead taking care of her little siblings. And, to... and extended family. Seven people, she said. Yeah. Taking money from Zion to do spying stuff. Kind of maybe romantically involved with one of the, the ship's crew. Yeah. Clearly we're doing that again. The nice little added layer here, though, is Miharu was obviously in dire straits, right? She desperately needed the money. But with Cecilia, we see how afraid she is. And like, yes, her whole life, people have been calling her crybaby. But it occurred to me, she probably remembers the one-year war and all of these subsequent conflicts. And the whole time, she has lived in this place that is a battleground, that is in constant threat, and that has been partially destroyed multiple times. She has lived in a war zone for most of her life. Well, and Torres says he left Granada when he was about 10 years old. I don't know exactly how old Torres is, but assuming he's around like 18 or so, that would mean Torres probably left Granada right before the war started. So unlike Millie and uh, Cecilia, Torres grew up here but didn't experience the Xi'an occupation during the one-year war or the probably guerrilla fighting and the the subsequent rebuilding. And it's very clear that Goten understands what it is she's afraid of and is willing to manipulate that. He says explicitly, if you don't do what I want, I won't give you the money and then you will be dragged into this conflict and you will die. They do a subtle thing with Gotten here, though, because when he first makes contact with her, she's, like, bowing very deeply and apologizing, and she's, like, terrified that he's going to take away this thing that he's offered to her. And at first, he looks, like, surprised, and then you see him smile as he figures out what she's afraid of and how he can leverage it. Yeah, that's a very particular bow. Her hands are clasped and then raised above the level of where she's lowered her head. Um, I don't know if there's a name for that or if it has any specific meaning, uh, but it's clear that she is very apologetic and trying to convey that because she's afraid that the tickets for her family on this immigration ship will be taken away. Her desire to escape is conveyed so poignantly through the episode And Granada doesn't look that bad from what we see of it. Yeah, I mean, it looks like many of the other Space City shots that we've seen, right? We're rarely shown impoverished people, you know, with the exception of, you know, where were Judo and uh, Lena living in Shangri-La. But they managed to convey a lot just with the implications of Cecilia's situation. Her brother shows up and she's like, who's watching Grandma? Oh, third sister is doing it. You know, suddenly we have this impression of 
oh, if she's tasking this little boy with looking after their grandmother, then there are a lot of people dependent on her waitressing job. Yeah. At, at which she's constantly, like, getting yelled at and bursting into tears. And I hope, I suspect, we're going to get a little glimpse of her sort of day-to-day life in the next episode, in part two, because she tells Torres to meet her there. Goten says he'll meet her there. Uh, You know, I suspect we're going to wind up back there, even though at the end of the episode, they are detaining her. Well, it's I guess it's not entirely clear what's going to happen at the end of the episode. It is a cliffhanger. Right, because Judo hasn't actually said anything. Do you think he will? I strongly suspect that Judo is going to be a bit of a softy and let her go but that they might explain to Torres afterwards why they were going to stop her. Because, you know, the the whole thing in the first place was that they had to keep her from getting the Argama destroyed. And if they let her go, that's still a relevant threat. Like, she could still give away information that hurts them. Yeah, I mean, if they do keep following the path laid out by the Miharu storyline, uh, she does sort of need to get out and then be drawn back in again. You know, there needs to be that moment where they come and they say, we need you to sneak onto the white base, right? Mm-hmm. We need you to do the next more dangerous thing. I mean, she's already been on the Argama, but yes, they will probably demand more from her. The other thing that she that she doesn't realize is that nowhere is safe. Well, the question of why she wants to leave and where she wants to go is uh, hanging over this episode. I think she wants to go to side six because there's that line from the little brother when he gets the money from Gotten, like, oh, this is money that's usable even on side six. Ah, okay. Because, yeah, most of the time she just says, oh, yeah, I'm thinking of moving to a colony. And this is not an unusual desire, right? Everybody understands that she would want to do that. And when Judo and Elle are talking about it, they talk about the expense of doing so. And Elle says, oh yeah, all of the rich people have probably already left. We see here a comparison between Shangri-La and Granada, both of which are older. We know Shangri-La was the first colony. Granada and all the cities on the moon were settled before the colonies were built. So it's it's an older structure. And there's sort of two ways you could imagine that going. If you were hypothesizing a future, you could say, Maybe Granada, having been lived in longer, would be more thoroughly developed. The infrastructure would be better. The economy would be better. But that's clearly not the direction they've gone. Instead, they've said that these old places are run down. They're inhabited by only the impoverished people who can't afford to leave. And uh, all the rich people move on to the shiny new frontier, wherever that is. One other note about them all being on the moon, since we were just talking about it. Uh, If you watch closely, when people walk around, especially when they're running, they actually sort of like bounce because the gravity is less. It's not Earth-like gravity that you get on a colony or in the gravity block of a ship, which is a neat detail to include. One more language note that comes up with Cecilia, which is why I thought of it, but that, you know, we mentioned... In the last episode, two episodes ago, uh, that sometimes in Japanese, familial terms like big brother, big sister are used with people you don't know, uh, just as a way to address someone whose name you don't know. And because the second person is very rarely used in Japanese, you almost never say you. (laughs) Uh, And we hear 
Cecilia do this with one of the gate guards when she claims to be dropping off pizzas. She's like, oh, you've heard of our shop, right? And she calls one of them Onisan. Mr. Big Brother. A quick note about Cecilia's voice actor. Cecilia is voiced by Yumi Mitani, an actor who is mostly known for appearing in TV dramas. This is actually her only anime role. So it's a little unclear why she did this or how she got the role. Like I said, she's mostly known for uh, TV dramas, but Western fans might recognize her from classic tokusatsu show Denko Chojin Gridman, where she played the main girl character's mother, Inoue Yoshie. Oh, and when they do the scene of everybody going to the pizza parlor, there is a insert song that plays. Um, it's a nice little poppy song. That's uh, Hoshizora no Believe, which is the original ending track for Zeta. But it's one of those that was based on a Neil Sedaka song, and so it couldn't be included in the English release. Not sure why it's here. Maybe they couldn't. <laughs> maybe they didn't have a copy of the Masters that didn't have this song already baked in, and so there was no choice except to release it. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I hope that that's all <laughs> legit. Related to the Cecilia thing, we also have a return of Gotten in a major role. He's sort of been backgrounded for a little while. Uh, he's operating independently now, although he's still saddled with his incompetent subordinates. It's nice to see a little bit of the old Gotten coming back to the fore. He is, once again, the smartest Xian in the room, although that doesn't do him much good. Uh, the bit with him, like, trying to get his uh, idiot subordinates, Nell and Clayu, not to salute him when they're out in public in civilian dress. That was very funny. <laughs> Uh, they can't help themselves. It's true. He's got his own ship now. He mentions the need to capture the Argama. We see this come up so many times, right? That people ideally want to capture ships rather than destroy them, which in a way is reminiscent of a lot of old naval battles um, in sort of the age of sail. You wanted to capture ships because then you got to keep them or your government paid you for them. <laughs> and you could use them in a ruse de guerre later. It was very useful for everyone involved to capture ships if possible. And that's still partially what's happening here, right? A ship is a, a very expensive, difficult to make piece of technology. If you can capture a ship, then you can make use of it. They also want to capture Granada as a whole. And in this case... There really is no value to destroying Granada. I like that they've set up a parallel construction here where on both sides we see the subordinates taking the initiative and uh, going out and taking charge of the situation, notwithstanding their commanding officer's orders to the contrary. Well, in both cases, they have information that their commanding officers do not have, uh, that they sort of fail to communicate either completely or, or until, like, things are underway already. You know, Clayu and Nell don't tell Gotten, oh, we've been found out. We screwed up. They know we're here. Uh, They're coming like, for us. We take responsibility. And he's like, responsibility for what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they make a nice counterpoint to Bicha and Mondo. They have their humorous scuffle in the pizza place. I particularly enjoyed the biting and the pizza throwing. <laughs> I recognized one of the Japanese words in there from doing martial arts. Uh, Bicha tells, I think, Clayu is biting him. And he says, Hansoku da yo. Like, that's a penalty. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I was like, oh, I know that word. 
I also like that as soon as Bicha and Mondo uh, flip the tables, as soon as they have the advantage, they get their revenge on Nell and Clayhew. It's not about beating them in the mobile suit fight. It's not about winning the battle. It's about like pounding them, pummeling them, pummeling yeah. them <laughs> causing them to suffer. We also see them continuing to be themselves, but in perhaps a way that demonstrates that they're learning. Uh, you know, they mention, oh, we have to tell the Argama what's happening. We can't go straight after these other guys. We have to go inform the ship. And as they're launching, you know, Bicha tells Enol, we have to do something to prove ourselves or nobody here will trust us. Which, frankly, is very similar to things he said when he was on the Endra. I have to prove myself or they'll never trust us. But it does feel a little less impulsive now, a little more reasonable and measured in terms of how he's doing it. Yeah, all the kids here, well, Bicha, Mondo, and L are all presented as uh, kind of being pretty savvy operators, having a, a sense for how the world should work, but also how the world does work. And, you know, L, when they're trying to catch Cecilia in the act as a spy, is thinking in terms of what can we do to get some leverage in Ayug? What can we do to prove that we are indispensable? To prove our value to this person who we have found out now is very powerful. And to whom Judo delivered a beautiful knee to the gut. Oh, yeah. So satisfying. I cheered a little. Would you say that was the best moment of Double Zeta so far? Oh, it's up there. <laughs> it's definitely up there. I get the sense from what you told me earlier that you have a lot to say about Wong Lee. I do. And it's all pretty angry. Mm. But uh, before we get there, a couple last comments on sort of Bicha and Mondo. We finally see Bicha not be terrible as a pilot. <laughs> you made He's it, learning. kid. You know, he credits some time in the, in the simulator aboard the Endra, which apparently, despite the fact that they were being worked very hard, he did get some simulator time. And we see one of the, uh, the Axis pilots totally just target Judo's weak point <laughs> with his mom ploy. <laughs> it's uh, a little odd that that specific line would get to Judo, because Judo doesn't seem to have much... Uh, affection for his mother, no like mother complex mm. the way an Amaro or a Camille did. Or a Galemi. Uh, oh God. Um, yes, so <laughs> I don't know that it's the mother thing specifically so much as that Judo is just like taken off guard by this enemy pilot trying to appeal to his emotions. Because Judo is a softy. Judo doesn't want to kill any of these people. He is. And see, I don't know. He clearly doesn't have like a fixation on his mom. But our assumption is that his parents are both alive and are both out working someplace trying to support their kids, and it's mm -hmm. not enough. So I guess I would assume he has, like, normal feelings for his mom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to be, like, super normative about this, but I assume that he does feel affection for his parents, even if that's a distant relationship. He's just given us nothing to go on about that. He's used to having to do without them. He's used to having to do without in general, and that shows up again and again throughout this episode and is actually, I think, a big part of the way he interacts with Wong Lee, Bright, and the whole AUG establishment. So 
So I think the first thing that needs to be mentioned about Wang Li is that he expects everyone to know who he is. He never introduces himself to anyone. He just expects people to know who he is and to treat him as if he's an authority, just like sight unseen. They're just supposed to know this because he's so important that everyone's supposed to already know. That's true. I hadn't thought about that, but everybody is always telling everybody else. That's Wang Li.、Right. He's very important. We get some indication in the conversation with Judo and Torres that Judo might have treated Wang Li differently if he had understood like what position Wang Li held. Because when Torres tells him he's super important, he could get you kicked off the ship, and then how will you rescue Lena? That's when Judo chokes on his food. He's like, <laughs> "Oh, I did not really understand what was going on here." I Don't know if Judo would have reacted differently had he known. He definitely would not have let Wang Li beat him up. I agree on that point, but I I think he might have behaved differently in some ways, and it is a surprise to him. It's not something he already knew, and I think the way that Wang Li treats people assumes that they already know. Definitely, it's a little thing, and I think it it goes to show how well thought out. Uh, parts of the animation and the acting in the episode are Wangli is constantly touching people. He's constantly like hand on the shoulder, getting up in people's personal space in a way that is very entitled、mm-hmm. and patronizing. Yeah, aggressive, domineering. I mean, this is perfectly expressed in that bit towards the end of the episode when he's talking to Bright, and he gives Bright kind of like a, a not gentle, but like a light punch in the stomach. Because this just perfectly shows how Wang Li relates to everybody and what he thinks of and how he treats Bright. And the the hand on Bright's shoulder, and multiple times with Judo, it, it's just like a constant thing. And every time he does it, I cringe. You know, as Bright tries to point out to him multiple times. <laughs> so Bright is running into some serious Ayug problems, which is that foundationally, unless something has changed, none of the Ayug <laughs> top brass, none of the the backers, none of the people. In charge are military people. There's no military representation at that level within Ayug, and so they are making decisions, as Bright says, on paper, without really understanding what it takes to make a ship like the Argama function or the realities of what they're asking people to do. Ayug actually has a, a really fundamental problem now, which is that the organization was founded basically as an anti-Titans group. It was an armed spacenoid rights group that was specifically directed at fighting against the Titans and protecting spacenoids from Titan oppression. The fact that it was basically controlled by Anaheim Electronics and Wang Li and these other、uh, business interests was really easy to ignore as long as the Titans were around. But the Titans are gone now.、Uh, Ignoring some side works that hadn't been written yet and don't count, <laughs> the Titans are gone now. So, what is Ayug's purpose? If Ayug's purpose is what it originally was—to be a armed force opposing the Earth Federation government's、uh, domination of the space colonies—like, <laughs> yeah, they're not doing that anymore. Well. There's that whole conversation with Bright on the bridge where Wang Li is questioning Judo's motives. 
and says, I don't want somebody who only fights for his sister. I want people who will fight for Ayug. And I'm sitting here tearing my hair out going, what does that even mean? <laughs> what does it mean to fight for Ayug? No one has articulated that. The last time we even got close was Quattro's speech <laughs> at Dakar. Yeah. They have not given these kids anything to fight for other than meals and a paycheck. And not even a very good paycheck, because as Judo pointed out in a prior episode, they don't even pay hazard pay. So what exactly is it you're expecting people to be loyal to? Well, and whatever separation existed between the Federation and AUG has gotten real thin. Because when Cecilia tries to get into the port where the Argama is docked, the guards at the gate are Federation guards. They're just, like, generic Federation guards. Bright points out... You know, just because Axis is attacking Earth doesn't mean the Argama needs to go to Earth. But apparently the Ayug higher-ups think that is what it means. Yeah. I really liked this little scene between Bright and Wong. It's oh. subtle. There's a lot of nuance in it. Yes. But when they talk about Camille, you can tell Bright regrets what happened to him, still thinks about it regularly, and probably feels really personally guilty for what happened. Yeah, I, absolutely. And resents Wong Lee's very utilitarian attitude toward these kids that he thinks are new types. He's like, one, obsessed with the idea of new types and telling him that any kid is a new type will, will you know, change his opinion on whether or not that person needs to be involved. Well, because for Wong, it's all stats, right? Like when he talks about giving Bright the better battleship, the new one that they're developing, it's like, oh, it's probably going to be bigger and have more guns and it'll be better. That also read to me a bit like, well, very, very businessy and a bit like a bribe. (laughs) It's like, yes, I know I'm asking you to do this task that you don't want to do. But when you complete the task, I will give you this new shiny, wonderful thing. (laughs) How do you feel about that? (laughs) Actually bad. (laughs) But so I'm thinking that in Wong's mind, there's like a stats sheet, like out of an RPG, and it just says new type plus 10 to all stats. So of course you want every kid to be a new type. Why even bother with the ones who aren't? The one thing I didn't like about this scene is, and I don't know how you could have done this and made it work as well, but it feels a little weird that they focus so much on Camille and Bright doesn't even mention cats, who like... Bright has a much longer relationship with Katz and his relationship with Hayato, Katz's dad. But I don't think he blames Wong Lee for Katz. He blames Wong Lee for Camille. Hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. Also, when the fight happens between Wong and Judo, Bright kind of restrains Wong, like a little bit physically, but definitely verbally, at the same time that L is holding Judo back, which is such a contrast to the way Quattro handled Wong's beating of Camille back in episode nine of Zeta. We see Bright pushing against Wong Lee this whole episode, right? Every time Wong tries to push him in one direction, Bright says, "Mm, uh, how about no? You know, in kind of a, a subtle way until he can't do it in a subtle way. Because ultimately, Bright is used to following orders, but... Well, Bright is used to following orders, but Bright is also used to knowing how to say no in a hierarchical situation. He knows how to say yes and mean no. Yeah, it feels very, um, I don't know. This is, <laughs> this is very much a product of the past few months. 
But when Wang Li essentially conveys his expectation that everybody should be working at maximum effort constantly, I was like, mm, classic, that's entirely unreasonable and not good for your employees. And nobody works their best under those circumstances. And Which is why it's so important that the Argama staff unionized. Oh, my God. The so scene at the end. I was so mad at Bright last episode, right? And... His expression of solidarity for these kids here almost completely won me back over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at the end, when the kids all say that they are they're in it together, and Bright is like, yes, and so is the entire rest of the crew. Right, you know, he acknowledges that he can't control Wong Lee. He says, you know, you can punish these kids however you want, but the entire rest of this crew feels like they do. The impression I got was that they were all threatening to walk. <laughs> United Mobile Suit Workers, Argama Chapter, local number one. We should get Nell and Clay you unionized, too. Isn't one of them dead now? Yes. <laughs> one of them got blown up, dude. Yeah. yeah. This is why they need a union. Workplace safety. And perhaps, to some degree, Bright's show of solidarity here is because Camille is still on his mind, and he doesn't want the same things to happen again. Uh, you know, he also stands up for Bichan Mondo. Like, they absolutely did betray the Argama, but he's trying to cast it as like, they didn't really betray us. You know, we we weren't making good use of all their energy. Well, they're his subordinates, and as a commander, it's his job to stick up for them. Bringing Camille up like this feels like a very deliberate choice by the writer, because this is an episode in which Judo faces some of the same issues that Camille did vis-a-vis uh, -vis his relationship with Ayug and with Wong. And Judo responds very differently from the way Camille did. Uh, and that response is very telling about his character as a person and how he interacts with these power structures. Ultimately, Zeta was the story of Camille deciding to compromise on his personal beliefs for the sake of attaining the power necessary to oppose the Titans. It was a tale about Camille making a deal with the devil, basically, and choosing to side with the lesser of two evils. Camille was fundamentally anti-violence. He, he didn't want to hurt anyone. He didn't particularly want to fight anyone except for the, uh, you know, Titans military police who tormented him. There were so many times when he didn't want to kill someone, he didn't want to fight, he didn't want to hurt anybody. And then we have Judo, who has had to fight and scrape and scrap his whole life for survival. And Camille didn't have anywhere else to go or didn't have anything else he wanted to do, really. I mean, Camille was a like hurt, traumatized child looking for people who would love him, and instead he found this army that wanted to use him. Judo has friends. Judo has a peer group, right. as you said last week. <laughs> right. For Judo, this is much more utilitarian, right? Like, this is a job, potentially, that will allow him to provide a better life for his sister. And Judo has repeatedly rejected the ideological basis of the war. Uh, in the prior episode, when he blocks the shot of Axis, and he says, who cares about the war? And then this episode, when he's like, who cares about your dumb, weird war? I want to save my sister. That's more important. All right. And who are you to say that it isn't? Who are you to say that your war is more important than my sister's life? 
particularly when the purpose of the war has not been well articulated to Judo or anyone else. And Judo expresses during this episode that he doesn't need the Argama. He doesn't need Ayuk. He doesn't even really need the double Zeta in order to rescue his sister. He's willing to do it on his own. He might be wrong. He might actually need those things. But the feeling from him is that he could do it on his own. I thought Wong's characterization of Camille as like the ideal soldier was very revealing about Wong's character. Mm-hmm. Because Camille was not the ideal soldier. Camille hated Wong Lee and only followed his orders because he had to. But it's so easy to make a martyr out of somebody once they're gone, isn't it? Well, and somebody who took a beating and then seemed to absorb the lesson that that beating was meant to convey. I thought the animation on this episode was sort of uh, a little wonky in places. In places it was really good, and then in some places it was a bit rough. There was one moment, though, where Torres is talking to Cecilia and she sticks her tongue out a little bit. And I was like, oh, that's cute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some very charming moments. A couple of rough ones. But the one that got me is when uh, Beecha throws the pizza at the fleeing (laughs) Axis officers, but he hits Mondo in the back of the head. And then in the next scene, we see Mondo run out of the pizza shop with no sign of pizza dripping off of his hair. Tisk tisk. (laughs) But you know, Bright is right. Judo would not lie just to steal a mobile suit. He would sneak, punch, kick, bite, lasso, throw fruit, and blow things up with dynamite to steal a mobile suit. But he would never lie. He would very brazenly tell you, I'm stealing this mobile suit to go rescue my sister. <laughs> Bye. And now the research. First, Tom's research on Millie's name, and then my research on pizza in Japan. A brief note about the recently introduced Millie, who plays such a large role in this episode. While we don't know very much about her, we can look up her full name, which is Millie Childer, or Miri Chiruda in the Japanese. The name itself is interesting, because it seems quite likely that it was taken from the real-world Victorian-era painter Millie Childers. Childers herself is a pretty obscure figure. Plenty of her works have survived, but there's very little information about her available online. Every biography that I was able to find has referenced only the same small handful of tidbits about her life. We do know that she was the daughter of prominent British politician Hugh Childers, who is an ally of William Gladstone, and who took office as First Lord of the Admiralty from 1868 Incidentally, that was just two years after Millie was born. In his capacity as First Lord of the Admiralty, Hugh Childers was described as hardworking, but inept, autocratic, and overbearing. He reorganized the Navy and he cut expenses, strengthening his own position by reducing the role of the professional naval advisors on the board of the Admiralty. In 1871, when Millie was five, Hugh Childers became involved in a quite serious scandal around the warship HMS Captain. And while this scandal might not have much to do with young Millie Childers or her Universal Century counterpart, at least not directly, the story is too fascinating not to share, and there are some possible connections to her role in Double Zeta. 
The HMS Captain itself is one of those fascinating artifacts of history that seems anachronistic, but is actually just what you get when one avenue of technology advances before the other supporting bits are ready for it. It's a bit like if you put Roman legionaries in a helicopter, or you designed a mobile suit powered by a steam engine. Except that the Captain was a real, if doomed, project. So in this case, the shiny new technology was the rotating gun turret, developed and subsequently patented by British Navy captain and inventor Cowper Phipps Coles during the Crimean War. These rotating cannon turrets worked well on rafts and other coastal or river navigating vessels, like the riverboat Monitor, but Britain had a vast maritime empire, and it needed ocean-going warships. The problem, though, was that the rigging necessary for a large sailing ship was the natural enemy of the rotating gun turret. The whole point of the turret is that you give a big gun a broader arc of fire, but if you're trying not to shoot through your own mast, or your own rigging, that means you have to restrict your arc of fire to only a fraction of what the turret could theoretically offer. And then what's the point of having a turret when you could get the same arc of fire and greater weight of shell from arranging your guns in broadside style? But why were they still using masts and sails at all? After all, we're talking about the 1860s and the 1870s, and ocean-going steamships had been operating quite successfully since the SS Savannah back in 1819. But while they had launched some hybrid steam-sail warships, the ever-conservative British Royal Navy considered steam engines at this point to be too unreliable for military service, and they had not yet ever commissioned an ocean-going warship without mast and sails. The HMS Captain was thus designed by Coles, who, remember, was the inventor of the turret design and not himself a naval architect, but it was designed as a three-masted, two-turret warship. So just like picture this, picture the fully rigged ship of the line, but with rotating turrets on it. Oh, I'm picturing it. The rigging, however, was attached to a platform that was mounted above the gun turrets so that the turrets would not need to fire through the rigging. Cole's design was initially rejected by the Admiralty, but he ran a campaign in the press and in Parliament and he was able to put enough pressure to force the Admiralty to allow him to build his design, over the strenuous objections from Naval Controller Robert Robinson and Chief Constructor Edward Reed, who both observed with alarm that the ship was too heavy. The freeboard, which is a measure of the distance from the waterline to the deck, was too short, and her center of gravity was too high. I've been feeling the impending sense of doom from this story ever since you mentioned sailing ship with rotating gun turrets. <laughs> At the same time that the HMS Captain was under construction, Chief Constructor Reed, who again was one of those who had objected to the Captain's design on the basis of its unseaworthiness, was himself engaged in the design of a different full-rigged turret ship, the HMS Monarch. Where turret designer Coles had compromised seaworthiness for the sake of the guns, Reed was forced to compromise on arc of fire in order to build a more seaworthy ship. And in addition to objecting to the design of the HMS Captain, Reed was also not happy with his own HMS Monarch. He felt like combining the turrets with the rigging basically made the turrets useless. From 1867 until 1869, the HMS Captain lay under construction at Birkenhead. 
Construction deviated from the original plan such that the ship, as finally built, was even heavier and she rode even lower in the water. She was commissioned in 1870 and was placed under the command of Captain Hugh Burgoyne, grandson of John Burgoyne, the British general who famously surrendered his army at Saratoga in the American Revolutionary War. Now, here is where Hugh Childers, Millie's father, re-enters the story. He took office as First Lord of the Admiralty in 1868, so after the design of the HMS Captain was approved and after construction began. But it does seem likely that Childers was one of those parliamentarians who allied himself with the turret's inventor and put pressure on the Admiralty to force the approval of the HMS Captain over their better judgment. In any event, he did oversee the ship's completion, its testing, and its commissioning. He also, in a move that comes straight out of Greek tragedy, pulled some strings and ordered the transfer of his own son, then a midshipman, off of the Monarch, that was the one designed by Reed, and onto the HMS Captain during her shakedown cruise with the Mediterranean and Channel squadrons. In July of 1870, the Captain had undergone performance testing at Portsmouth, which calculated her stability characteristics, but she set sail on her next voyage before the results of those tests were issued and conveyed to her commanding officer. Then, on the night of September the 6th, with designer Coles aboard to observe his ship's performance, the HMS captain encountered a gale. Captain Burgoyne ordered the sails taken in, but before the order could be carried out, the roll increased. The ship capsized and began to sink. 480 sailors, including midshipmen Childers and captains Burgoyne and Coles, were lost. Just 27 of the crew survived. In the aftermath, everyone blamed everyone, and although the subsequent inquiry did not exactly blame Childers for the disaster, it was clear that he could not expect to continue in his position. He would spend the rest of his political career bouncing between various positions. He was a controversial and unpopular Secretary of War for two years. Then he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, and proposed a budget so unpopular that its rejection brought down Gladstone's liberal government. He returned as Home Secretary in Gladstone's third premiership, which lasted all of a few months. In 1892, having succeeded at achieving many high offices, but also sort of failed at accomplishing anything, he retired from public office and began traveling around England and France. He was accompanied on these trips by his daughter Millie, then in her late 20s. As they traveled, she painted landscapes and church interiors, as well as some street scenes and portraits. She also painted a self-portrait, in which she looks at least a little bit like her Universal Century counterpart. I think it's a safe bet that Millie Childer took her name from Millie Childers. The latter might be a somewhat obscure painter, but we've seen before that the staff working on Gundam have an interest in what we might call fine art. And remember all of those real-world paintings that showed up in the backgrounds of Zeta Gundam. But learning more about her father makes me wonder if perhaps the connection goes deeper than just the name. Both Millies were traveling around in the company of a man old enough to be their father, a man who could be described as hardworking but inept, autocratic, and overbearing, a man notable for meddling in things he doesn't understand, and for his singular focus on installing a new kind of big gun on a warship. Anyway, I hope the argument doesn't capsize the next time they fire the big gun.
Several of the characters in this episode make a big deal about Granada's local specialty of pizza. Not just pizza, Granada Moonface style pizza. So this seemed like the perfect opportunity for a fun research piece about the history of pizza in Japan. When did pizza first come to Japan? How did pizza businesses take off? And was it particularly popular in the 1980s? Unsurprisingly, pizza first appeared in Japan after World War II during the occupation. Two pizza restaurants, Nicola's and Antonio's, opened in the Roppongi neighborhood of Tokyo in the 1950s. Both named for their owners, Nicola's was opened by an Italian-American ex-Marine, and Antonio's by a Sicilian chef who had been working on an Italian naval vessel. And in these early days, pizza was a decidedly upscale food, and these restaurants were patronized by wealthy locals and foreigners. By the 1960s, Japanese supermarket chains were importing frozen pizza from the United States. The 1970s saw an increase in pizza being served at other restaurants that served Western-style food, like cafes and family restaurants. And it was in the early 1970s that pizza chains, serving a more fast-food style of pizza, began to open. One of my sources credits a 1969 change to the laws around foreign investment that allowed for foreign capitalized investments and co-ventures. In the early 1970s, Shakey's Pizza and Pizza Hut chains opened, followed by Domino's Pizza in 1985, and the first Japanese delivery pizza chain, Pizza La, in 1986. Fast food pizza offered lower prices and made pizza more accessible to average people, but pizza remained an exotic rarity outside of large metropolitan areas for some time. The other trend in the 1980s was towards more home delivery for pizza, and this remains a popular delivery food in Japan today. As of 2019, there are 1,405 pizzerias in Tokyo alone. Domino's remains the largest pizza chain in Japan, and Pizza La comes in a close second. The kids' reaction to the pizza in this episode, especially Bicha and Mondo, makes it clear that the two of them have heard of pizza, that they find pizza an exotic, exciting concept, and they have definitely never eaten pizza in their lives, but don't want anyone to know that. I didn't completely agree with you until I remembered Mondo's uh, comment about it's round like the moon, and Judo is like, all pizza is round. <laughs> Which is actually not true, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's layers here of the kids not understanding pizza culture. And then Mondo is, like, embarrassed about this, right, when Judo calls him out for not actually knowing anything about pizza. And to some extent, I mean, Shangri-La is a city, obviously, but we've talked many times about how it has the feeling of a place that's a bit remote, a bit run down, a bit off the beaten path. And so it sort of fits with this idea that pizza was not a very common food outside of the largest metro areas. The ways in which pizza has been localized to the Japanese market often surprise visitors to Japan. As a student, I was a bit horrified the first time I discovered the pizza my classmates and I had ordered was covered in mayonnaise. Other common toppings include corn, wasabi, tofu, codro, seaweed, squid ink, miso paste, or daikon. Sometimes, in place of a bread-based crust, the crust will be made of mochi, a sort of cake made of pounded glutinous rice. In the United States, we're more familiar with mochi in desserts, but it's used in savory dishes as well. At some restaurants, ketchup replaces tomato sauce. Frozen pizzas are available in Japanese grocery stores, but are formulated to be reheated in a pan on the stove or in a toaster oven, 
as larger ovens are a rarity in Japanese homes. On the other hand, beginning in the 1990s, some pizza restaurants became members of the Italian Asociazione Verace Pizza Napoletana, or AVPN, an organization that promotes traditional Neapolitan pizza and, basically, certifies restaurants that make their pizza in accordance with certain rules. These styles of pizza, the highly localized versions versus the certified authentic versions, the fast food and mass-produced versus the artisanal and handmade, uh, all coexist in Japan, especially in large metro areas. And the history of pizza in Japan is punctuated with fun anecdotes and stories. The Japanese pizza chain Pizzala was apparently inspired by the chairman of their parent company watching the movie E.T., in which Domino's Pizza figures pretty prominently. Domino's expansion in Japan was led by third-generation Japanese-American Ernest Higa, who credits being bicultural with a lot of his success. And remember Nicola's, the restaurant I mentioned earlier? Well, its founder, Nick Zapetti, was apparently a former black market dealer, a failed pro wrestler, personal friend of famous Japanese wrestler Ricky Dozan, and deeply involved in mafia activity in Tokyo. None of that really ties to this episode. The restaurant they eat at has the feel of a Japanese family restaurant, but also clearly specializes in pizza. In all likelihood, it comes up here because the expansion of chain restaurants meant that by the mid-1980s, pizza had become a food that young people could afford, and like many imports, had cachet. It was trendy, different, and fun. And one gets the sense, especially with Millie and Torres, that these are like upwardly mobile young people with good jobs and good incomes spending their money on like fun, popular leisure activities. And it's especially interesting that Millie offers to pay for Torres, even though they're on a date. That feels like it must have been uh, very much of the time in 1986. Girls paying for dates. Humorously, this idea doesn't phase Judo or Elle at all. They're shameless. <laughs> and, oh, has someone offered to pay? Well, and Torres isn't embarrassed about it. Actually, the only time Torres gets embarrassed is when he asks if they put salt in the cola at this restaurant. And everyone is like, how could you ask that? I don't know what they're getting at there, but it does feel like they're getting at something. Uh, I tried to look something up. <laughs> if I want more information, I might have to look in Japanese. In English, there is a, a thing in certain parts of the United States for putting salted peanuts in Coke. I've never tried it. I bet it's pretty good. Uh, but that was the only like salty cola thing that I could find. But who knows? There have <laughs> been so many different soft drinks all over the world with different flavor profiles depending on the country that makes them. So Maybe some of our listeners can tell us why they think Torres is asking about salty cola. This week, we offer a touching tribute to Nell and or Clay Yu, whose tragic demise in this episode perhaps heralds- uh, Hang on, they're not dead. What? Oh, I'm with you, buddy. I was sure one of them was dead. Next time on episode 3.19, Wish You Well. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 21, and L Cuts to the Chase. Peeping Mondo. I thought you were dead! Goten's best Mashima impression. 
Um, duh. Oh, Cecilia, you're breaking my heart. You're shaking my confidence daily. A ship full of clones. Your periodic reminder that adults are terrible. Steerage. And, frankly, my dear, I hate crybabies who only think of themselves. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... A powerful curse was placed on the Endra that turned anyone who commanded it into a blithering idiot. Now that it's been destroyed, the world is finally free of the curse. But Gotten, its last commander, is doomed to suffer from intermittent Mashima syndrome for the rest of his life. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was inspired by Specialist Soul Taker. Thank you, Specialist Soul Taker. And thank you for listening. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's perfect, yeah. <laughs> is it is it cool? I you know, I think it's cool. I think I think it's cool. <laughs> Uh, hang on. Uh, they're not dead. What? 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 Just trying a couple of different what's to get the right one. I'm feeling pretty riled about this Wong Lee character. <laughs> Wong Lee does not prove that love is real. But I think this episode does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and a bunch of people in it. What a good episode. Like the last, the last two episodes were pretty okay. I'll admit that. But I really liked this one. I'm pretty sure in modern grappling that if you bit somebody, that would be more than Hansoku, but... Maybe the rules were different then. <laughs> Friggin', you're gonna have to bleep me. <laughs> mm. He blames Wang Li for judo. Or not judo. Now I'm mixing up all the names. <laughs> Time over. Time over! <laughs> Judo, time oba. What a horrifying story. Yeah.
Like, it's bad enough that the ship capsized, but they almost lost all souls. Like... Yeah. It was really incredibly bad. And it was just a hair's breadth away from being even worse, because the, like... I want to say the highest-ranking admiral in the fleet was on board the ship to observe its performance that night, and just, like, decided that he was going to go back to his ship shortly before the disaster happened. Yikes. You can't even finish the sentence. <laughs> Thanks for always bringing up this, this group. Keep going. Tom Thompson here for TNN. Maybe there's something wrong with you. Why can't I talk like a normal person? <laughs> it just, it's like when yeah. actors go across the thing and suddenly you forget how to walk. Yeah. You know I mean? <laughs> Gildenstern! <laughs> How's the talking go? <laughs> Not so great, thanks. I don't seem to be able to do an entire sentence this evening, never mind. <laughs> it'll, it'll work out one day or another. <laughs> I never said I could act anyway, so... Oh, sister. 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 Computer sister. Mmm. Hugging computer sister. Okay. Okay.